Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. Yay! It is, yes, thank you. It is half an hour of science just for you. We have prepared especially. My name is Chris, and I am talking about a big event that happened in space recently. Uh, you may have been following the Rosetta spacecraft, its journey to the Comet 67P Churium um, of Gerasimenko. I practice saying that. Um, and its journey finished uh, on the 30th of September. So I'll be talking about what that comet, what that spacecraft was, what it did, what it found, and its uh, fairly sad demise. I think we're all a bit sad to see it go. But anyway. Exciting. Um, exciting, yes. Very exciting. Manisha, what are, what are you doing today? Um, so today I've got a cool story about birds. Yay, birds. Oh. I'm going to be talking about how um, birds from the corvid family, uh, like ravens and jays and crows and nutcrackers, um, I'm basically going to be talking about how they're just super intelligent and really like, cool. Super intelligent? Is more intelligent than us? Yes. No. No, not, maybe not more intelligent than us, but they're, like, we've got some really cool examples from the animal behavior world about how they are actually, they're, they're pretty nifty. They're pretty cool guys. I like and the girls. sound of that. Mm. Yes. Um, and Stu, what are you? What, are you? what am I? <laughs> I'm I'm an interviewer this week, and I uh, am going to talk to Rosie Honan about her research in the northern parts of Australia into the decline of tiny Australian native fauna at the I was going to say at the hands of at the claws of feral cats and what influence that has, and also um, where do feral cats go to hunt. And where do they not go? And they found out that there's there's some areas of the countryside they like better. Mm. Right. Well, um, I'm trying to think of a cat pun. Um, I'm sure one will come to me by the end of this whole exercise. It'll just whisk us away. Yeah. yeah. I, was, I was going down that path. Oh, but, guys, um, yeah. pity me. Please pity yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's not get our claws out about this one. <laughs> All right. Well, on with the show. Yes, you are listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris, and 30th September 2016 is the date when the European Space Agency's Rosetta spacecraft sent its last message, and its mission was officially over as it crashed into the comet that it had been orbiting for the last couple of years. So that was planned, though. Oh, it was planned. And, yeah. like, crashed, opinions fun. differ about the word crashed. I mean, it was crashed in the sense that it was... it. It struck the comet. It was its final thing. Yeah. Um, But it kind of, they called it a landing because it kind of hit at about three kilometers an hour. So it wasn't going very fast. But, you know. So if if you were running and fell over, you could be going that fast. Yeah, that's right. Well, if you you were walking and fell over. So it it hit it at a walking pace. At a a bit slower than a walking (laughs) pace, yeah. So, well, because, I mean, the thing, one of the things is that this this is a comet, it's not very big. Uh, it's about four kilometres long, and uh, so its gravity is not huge. If you go too fast, you're just going to, like, bounce off. Uh, so you don't want to do that. You want it to nice and stick to landing. 
Uh, anyway, so what is this spacecraft? I'm glad you asked me that question. <laughs> this is the Rosetta spacecraft. As I said, it was launched by the European Space Agency. It was launched in 2004, and it arrived at Comet 67P churyumov gerasimenko named after the astronomers who discovered it. Um, it arrived in August 2014, so it looked like 10 years. Like It had kind of a looping around the Earth a few times, and it kind of did flybys of other asteroids and things and checking out and a bit of a tour of the solar system. But yeah, getting into rendezvous with, um, with this comet at the right speed and everything so it could orbit it it's obviously a tricky a tricky mm. thing you need to like get just the right trajectory so yeah it took 10 years to get there and then short, shortly after it arrived it sent down the robotic lander Philae which um, P-H-I-L-A-E which you may remember that uh, from a couple of years ago as well this is the one where it, it was supposed to land on the comet sent out like harpoons and things to try and steady itself oh, yeah. but it didn't work hit the, the wrong angle hit yep, yep, yep. Uh, and sort of bounced and ended up in a sort of a crevice like in, in the shadow so its solar panels couldn't get power so that was you know that seemed like a bit of a sad thing but it, it did have quite sensibly they ended up with the battery so that lasted about 60 hours and in that 60 hours it was able to collect a lot of data so we have a lot of data from both Philae and Rosetta that is now being crunched and analysed and interpreted to work out some more about um, about comets. Well, this particular comet, but, you know, we're examining other comets as well. And this is a big deal because comets are believed to have formed out of the, the raw material of the solar system back about 4.6 billion years ago, and nothing so much has happened to them since they've just been orbiting the sun. So it's, you know, they're, they're seen as a kind of a snapshot of the early solar system. Whereas well, we don't really know what they're made of. I mean, every every you know, book about space that I ever remember reading just says, yes, uh, comets are made of ice and dust. Dirty snowball yeah. is the concept, yeah. And they kind of, I think when we saw Halley's Comet, yeah, they sent, like, mm-hmm. it was one of the first ones they sent a pro to take a picture of, and it was kind of potato-shaped, so it kind of had this ver- this image of a potato-shaped dirty snowball. Dirty yeah. snowball. But anyway, like, the 67P was a bit different, so it wasn't shaped like a potato at all. It was kind of like a rubber duck shape. A rubber uh, duck? A rubber duck, yeah. It's kind cool. of like a body and a, and a, and and a, a neck head. and a head, yeah. Um, so they're all irregular shaped because they're so small that, Gravity doesn't make them into a ball. Yeah, or they can't quite. But yeah. gravity is strong enough to make them spherical. Oh. Yeah, and it was well. You look at the surface of it; it looks like just a rocky, dusty surface. It looks like a really rough landscape on Earth. But of course, this is nothing like Earth. There is no weather to speak of. There's no um, geology. It's just mm-hmm. you know stuff that's assembled there. So it's it's quite amazing. It's got this really spectacular rocky landscape, even though it's is just a lump of cool. stuff in space. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of interesting. Um, also, it is, it is quite light. Um, there's a lot of, I reckon there's a lot of open spaces inside. It's like quite kind of porous. Like bubbles in it sort of. Yeah, yeah. But even so, there are some hard bits. You know, obviously there is some ice there because it shoots out water vapour when it gets close to the sun. Um, you see these jets shooting out of the surface. That's why you get the, the comet tail. And it is thought that um, perhaps the, when the Philae lander hit, that it hit a bit of hard ice. And that's why it bounced off because I kind of thought it might like sink into the surface a bit, but it actually mm. hit a bit of ice and bounced off. Oh, they thought there might have been some, a bit of pool of dust or something to land in. Yeah, they, well, they thought, yeah, the surface might have a bit of give to it. But mm-hmm. yeah, as it is, you know, um, possibly just below the surface, there was, um, there was some ice. So yeah, so that's it. Um, the composition, as you said, there is a lot of water there. It is, um, the main composition is water, there's carbon monoxide, there's carbon dioxide. These things were kind of expected. There were some surprises, though. They found um, there was molecular oxygen, so oxygen, of course, is found in compounds like water and carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide, but they're quite surprised to find O2 uh, mm. given off from the comet, which is a bit of a, 
Yeah, unexpected thing. Mm. And there were some, you know, some organic molecules, uh, like things like amino acid, glycine, has been detected, and some other kind of ingredients of sugars and other amino acids and this sort of thing. And also the element phosphorus, which is important for making various chemicals necessary for life. So this is kind of one of the things where you know, people are speculating where the raw material for life on Earth came from and whether it may have come from things like comets that deposit on the Earth. Because the early Earth, when it formed, was obviously a lot bigger than a comet or an asteroid. It was very hot, very unpleasant place to be. And so some of your ingredients for life are a bit more fragile than that. And how they could have survived in the early Earth is, you know, people think, well, it would have been kind of a ball of molten rock. And then one of the theories is that things like water were deposited from comets onto the Earth. So this is one of the things I wanted to test is whether that was a feasible idea. So what they did is they actually examined the water they found on the comet or floating around the comet that was emitted by the comet. And they measured the isotopic ratio of it, which is the amount of ratio between deuterium and hydrogen. So deuterium is just a heavier isotope of hydrogen. It's got an extra neutron in the nucleus. And what they found uh, with Comet 67P, and they've actually done this measurement of other comets as well, they found that there's about three times as much deuterium to hydrogen as there is on Earth, in Earth water, which seems to suggest that the water that we have on Earth possibly didn't come from comets. So it kind of leaves a gap into where this water would come from because we don't think it could have just stuck around and pooled on the early forming Earth. If it wasn't deposited by comets, then where else? They're going to be looking at asteroids. I think they think maybe now asteroids as opposed to comets might might have some of the, the water in there. But, yeah, it is a bit of a mystery where the, the Earth water came from. There's an awful lot of water on Earth. There is a lot of water on yeah. Earth, yeah. And yeah. it had to come from somewhere. And we now know there's water on Mars as well, so and on some other planets, um, moons in the solar system as well. So it has gotten come from somewhere. Yeah. Um, we're just trying to got to figure out where. Yeah, so that's the main thing. It's kind of the most interesting thing that I think that they found from it. One other little bit was the song of Comet 67P, which Rose had to detect it. So this is some oscillations in the magnetic field around the comet. So the comet itself is too small to have like a magnetic field like the Earth, like a magnetic nucleus, but there's a plasma around it. And when that plasma gets hit by the solar wind, it gets waves in there which oscillate. And they have converted that those oscillating waves into um, an audible frequencies, which I'll just play for you now. How about I do that? Yes, yeah, so that is the kind of spooky sound of the comet 67P. As, That's incredible. Yeah. You'd really want to be expecting it before you came across it if you were flying through space. It does sound like the sort of thing you hear before an alien attacks you, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is a bit like that. Anyway, so that is what um, Rosetta and Phila had discovered. Look, RIP, Rosetta and Phila, I think um, you did a very good job. They did a yeah. damn good job. That's amazing. I'm Maggie Darren Pocock, and you're listening to Lost in Science on 3CR. So, carvids, uh, these include birds like ravens or crows and jays. Um, and today I'm going to talk to you about some cool um, studies from the animal behavior world that show their intelligence. But well, bef- Just before you do, yes. what's a jay? Do we have jays in Australia? No, I don't think we have jays in Australia. But if you think of like a blue jay... Ah, oh, I, I kind of know what one of those is. Camper it's- vans, you see them on the camper vans and <laughs> stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah, actually you do. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, the Jacob Camperman. That's, That's the one. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The Toronto Ravens. Blue Jays. Yes, the Toronto Blue Jays, a very exciting team. But yeah, Cro- Crows and Ravens. I'm I'm familiar with them, but yeah. I'm not wasn't quite sure what a J was. Okay. I'm going to assume that you don't know what Nutcrackers are either. But yeah, anyways, before I get into the like the intellectual stuff, I just want to clarify another thing. Um, so this family Corvids, they include Eurasian magpies, but not what we are more familiar with, not our Australian magpies. And if you're curious, you should Google image both of them and you'll see why the the Australian magpies are named after the Eurasian magpies. And it's because they have the same coloration and whatnot. Okay. So when European settlers came over, they said, oh, look, something that's black and white and reminds me of home. Yeah. I shall call it magpie. Exactly how it happened. But anyways, they're not uh, genetically related to the Eurasian magpies and they belong to the family mm, cracked... Cractocin, Cractocinae, Cractocinae. As convincing to me. <laughs> Which is actually a close relative of the Corvids. Okay, um, so they're, okay. they're quite smart too, aren't they, magpies? Yes, they yeah. are. And we, we're all really familiar with their swooping behaviors and other uh, territory defense and, um, and protective behaviors. They're, uh, you'll often see them rearing uh, their children, or so they'll have little baby fluffy magpies beside them and teaching them how to hunt and things like that and leaving those little guys on the ground on their own while they watch them from a tree or from a safe distance and see and make sure that their yep. little guys are doing well. So I have, I have heard that magpies too, if you walk near where they nest all year round, then they, they remember who you yeah. are and they won't swoop you. They won't swoop okay. you. Yeah, that's actually... So they a, can remember that, yeah, this mm, guy is always coming around here. and He's a good guy. Yeah, he's not going to try and climb yeah, the tree he, and steal my babies. Yeah. Mm. He's not a threat. Yeah. Mm. He or she are not threats. Um, yeah, so that that is actually true. And um, that sort of facial recognition is also observed in corvids. Yeah, so a lot of these examples may apply to our magpies, but I'm not I'm not entirely sure because these, these tests were specifically done on corvids. Uh, okay, so ravens, crows, Eurasian magpies, nutcrackers, and jays. These birds are crazy, crazy smart. Uh, they actually have um, their intelligence has been compared to great apes. So, oh. yep. So their brain to body ratio is similar to great apes. It's just slightly smaller, and they're just slightly smaller than uh, their brain to body ratio is just slightly smaller than humans. And um, in some cognition tests, they've actually. Uh, out-competed dogs and cats. Right. So just to kind of get an idea of how smart they are. Um, some of the coolest behavioral tests have shown um, corvids having really good memories. So something like this, the facial recognition sort of idea. Um, problem-solving abilities and also really cool tool-making skills. So I've just put, picked out a few of my favorite examples. So uh, one of them is this study that was done in Japan with crows and basically the crows were using vehicle traffic to help them open nuts so there were nuts falling from a tree or on a tree near a main road and they would uh when the lights would turn red they would the crows would fly out onto the street place the nuts on the ground and then when they would turn green the crows would fly away and then Uh hopefully the cars are going over the nuts to crack them open and then when the lights changed again they would repeat the process how clever is that? Pretty good. I was just, no, it no. just reminds me of Frogger only. They'd probably be more successful at it They're than a frog. Yeah, I hope yeah. they wouldn't die as much. It makes me really nervous to, to see animals on the road like that. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Um, the study actually even showed that when uh, like a crow was unsuccessful for a few attempts, it would go and rearrange where it's put the nuts and then come back and reap the benefits. Right. 
Yep. Oh, so they'd like they'd self-correct. Yeah. If it's not okay. getting if, if they're not, not getting working, squashed, they'd go, oh, I'll move them somewhere else. That's pretty yeah. good. That's, yeah. that's pretty clever. Yeah. Good problem solving. There's, there's humans who wouldn't think to do that. Oh, I know. <laughs> um, and I also like them because they're really cheeky. Um, there's studies that show that, um, okay, so these birds have crazy, crazy good memory. So they can hide their food stores and remember it up for ni- uh, up to nine months later. So they know where they've hidden food. But they're also documented um, having uh, basically observed where other birds are hiding their food stores. And then when those birds leave, they oh. run in and steal the food or fly in and steal the so food. So the stupid birds get their food pinched by the smart birds. Yeah, poor, poor stupid birds. But, yeah. but cool smart birds. The, the early bird may get the worm, but the smart bird gets, gets the, everything. The smart bird can find it later. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, so, and then some of the other cool trials include showing how um, crows and ravens use tools. And um, you can YouTube these uh, behavioral trials, and they're really interesting. But there's a series of trials where basically um, the the behavioral uh, the behavioralist, the animal behavioralist, are just making it harder and harder for the crows to get food. So in certain cases, they have it in a box, and the crow has to open the box or um, whatever the case may be, and then it's a series of trials, so it gets progressively harder. And one of the trials includes, like, the food food is at the bottom of a long tube, and the crows can actually reach in with their claws or with their, um, with their beaks, and so they get sticks and twigs and uh, basically fashion a little hook and pull the food out so it's closer to them and then grab it. Very, very clever. It's very clever. Isn't there, there's an Aesop's fable about a, um, isn't it a raven that, that um, had, wants to get a drink out of a pitcher of water and the water level is too low, can't reach it, so put stones in and raises the water level. It's probably based on a true story. Quite possible. I think, I think that it has actually been shown. All right. Yeah, like the something about, oh, I'm going to use the wrong word here. Nope. Water level. <laughs> That's not no, the what I going. You know, Aesop may have based there, on a true thing. Same as like the hare and the tortoise. I think that was an actual race between a hare and a tortoise. I don't think that is. I happened. think so. No, okay, anyway. I think there's documentation of it. No? No. Um, Okay, and uh, I just have one last example, and this one actually comes back to the Eurasian magpie. Um, These birds are are the only non-humans, oh, sorry, non-humans, non-mammals to have extensive grieving processes and something similar to a funeral ritual. Really? Yeah, so um, the most common example is basically that one... Like a bird will recognize a course. Often it's from roadkill. So this is how they've been observed because people are on the roads as well. Um, so uh, they'll notice the roadkilled individual and uh, come by there. And it's like, obviously, it's a little bit um, placing feeling onto something that you can't understand. But they lay grass on and on and beside the um, the dead individual Mm -hmm. and they also seem to have like a moment they sort of stand beside the the bird and then they take off and i know again i'm I'm not trying to make it sound like the animals are humans but this has been observed a number of different times with different populations and so it's pretty it's pretty compelling to think that there's some sort of a grieving process uh with these birds um yeah so the that that sort of funeral ritual it's been noted mostly in Eurasian magpies, but it, um, some behavioralists suggest that it happens in other corvids as well. Wow. Hmm. I would say stone the crows, but 
I don't think that's a good idea no, if they get sad about it. No, that is not a good idea. No, no. no. It's not a good idea anyways. No. Not just if they get sad about it. What are you doing, Stu? Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. If somebody calls you a bird brain, maybe it's not a bad idea or a bad thing. I have Rosie Honan on the phone. Um, Rosie has recently completed a PhD studying the effect of feral cats on native mammals. Is that the gist of what you're studying? Yeah, like it was one part of it. Really, we were trying to understand patterns of mammal decline in northern Australia and and why there were little pockets um, of northern Australia where mammals still persist, why they're persisting there. Okay, and, and feral cats kind of fit into that picture. Yeah, uh, obviously cats are to blame for a number of species declining, especially the, um, I guess, the smaller native mammals and marsupials yeah. that, you know, mouse-sized things that there are lots of in Australia. Totally. Cats are massive culprits for mammal decline right across Australia, but particularly up here in the north and, and in arid areas as well. Um, in northern Australia in the last 30 years or so, there's been really extensive declines in mammal species, which has kind of caught a lot of people by surprise because a lot of mammal declines occurred in Australia when Europeans first colonised the country, and these declines are happening within our lifetime. So, um, yeah, it's really like feral cats appear to be playing a massive role in causing these declines, and, and that it seems like our research is indicating that they're able, they're having more impact on fauna at the moment because of land use change, so change in fire patterns and intensification of grazing right across the north has meant that, that feral cats are more able to hunt. They're better and more effective predators because the country's more open and so a lot of these small mammal species that, that live up here are in rapid uh, decline, unfortunately. Yeah. So was your, was your initial aim to look at um, declining mammal species and then you discovered that the cats were a big cause of that decline? Um, my work is just part of a big uh, kind of group of research of people really trying to understand why mammals are disappearing in northern Australia now, why they didn't disappear, you know, 100, 150 years ago when a lot of the rest of Australia's fauna began to, to fall apart. Um, so, yeah, like there's a lot of people working on the problem and it seems to point to this same sort of direction. In northern Australia, um, fire patterns have changed since, since uh, Indigenous people have moved off the land, particularly in the last 50 years or so. And in that time, grazing regimes have changed. There's been a lot more um, farm. Uh, big stations have intensified their grazing up here and so there's just less cover for small mammals. And the feral cats, which have been in the landscape for 100, 200 years or so, are really starting to, to put the pressure on, on these species. So the, yeah. the feral cats haven't suddenly appeared. They've been there for a while, is that...? No, that's right. So they've been, they've been yeah. there for a while, but, but because of the land use change, they've become yeah. more able to catch the little critters. That's right. So there has been some research done in the central Kimberley that shows that Cats are more effective predators in open habitats. So if you're in a really rocky area, basically what they did is they put these GoPros around the necks of 
feral cats and they released them and so they had videos and they could look at where what kind of habitats they were having um, the greatest number of of kills like where they were able to kill the largest number of of native Australian fauna and they found basically if it's a burnt area or a, like a really open area they were much more likely when they pounced to actually um, kill and eat an animal and if it was a rocky or a grassy area they were they were much less successful as predators. So, yeah, so I guess the idea is that that changing fire patterns and, and grazing patterns have meant that the landscape up here is just much more open and cats are, are becoming much more effective predators. So they, they basically can catch them easier because there's no cover for the little animals. Yeah. The native right. fauna. So have mm-hmm. you found also that there was, you know, in places where you might, um, where, where you can sort of predict that there might be more diversity in the animals where the cats can't get to? Like, can you, can you pinpoint on a map or knowing an area where you might be able to find the native fauna rather than the cats because the cats don't want to go in there? Yeah, totally. Like, that's... Um, so part of my work has been trying to figure out why... There are like a few little pockets, particularly in the North Kimberley, where there's still really diverse populations of small mammals, like species like the golden bandicoot and the goldback tree rat have totally disappeared from the NT um, in the last 30 years or so, and they still hang on in these little pockets of the North Kimberley coast. So we were trying to look at why these little areas are so special, and, and we did go out there and try and figure out are there less cats in these in these pockets? Is that why these small mammals are hanging on there? And um, we looked at a few different locations throughout the Kimberley, and basically what we found was that um, in areas where there were where it was really rocky and complex, which also happened to be the areas where there's these diverse mammal populations, there tended to be less feral cats. And and feral cats tend to, it seems like they tend to avoid these really rocky, complex areas, potentially because they have less hunting success. They're not as successful predators where it's really rocky, where there's lots of cracks for these small mammals to hide. And I guess, I mean, you know, they'll, if, if, they're not, if they're not having any success, they'll get hungry and look somewhere else, I guess, if, if you were a feral yeah, cat, that's what totally. you'd do. Yeah. 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 But so it's really yeah. interesting work, I guess. I mean... I suppose it's not surprising, but it's it's interesting to know that there are places where the native fauna can hide from the from the feral cats. Yeah, totally. And it's good there's still some places where they can hang on. And and it's interesting in the context of, of like reintroductions, you know, if people are thinking of trying to find places where it might be feasible to reintroduce some of these animals where they where they were before. Um, and maybe these rocky complex areas where there's less feral cats might be somewhere that could be considered. And certainly, I guess, a place to start looking for places to reintroduce things as well. Yeah, mm. yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, it's, um, it's really interesting work. Um, thanks for sharing it with us on Lost in Science, Rosie. Yeah, no worries. Pleasure. That is it for another episode of Lost in Science where we have had clever corvids. We've had crazy cats or crooked cats or I'm trying to think, be alliterative here. Creepy cats. Creepy cats. I don't know. Cruel cats. Cruel cats. Cruel cats, yeah, and Mm. and ways to stop them. And we have had comet clashes, comet crashing. Ooh. Yeah, with Rosetta. Yes, all very the letter C. 
Um, this, this episode of Lost in Sons is brought to you by the letter C <laughs> and the Community Radio <laughs> Foundation, which does support us come from the Studios of 3CR in Melbourne, as across Australia on the Community Radio Network. What else do I need to say? Uh, you can get in touch with us on the email or on the Facebook or on the Twitter. Or listen to our podcast you can find on our website. Or you can listen to us next week when, once again, Stu, Manisa, Claire and Chris will get oh dear. Lost, lost in Science. science. <laughs> Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.